welcome to Changing Gears, where we explore research perspectives that go against the grain. I'm Sarah. And I'm McBad. For this episode, we take a step back from discussing scientific paradigms to talk about something a little different. It seems in 2018 that inclusion and diversity have been at the forefront of many conversations, whether it was placing Nova Scotian businesswoman and social justice activist Viola Desmond on the Canadian $10 bill, or the Oscar nomination of Greta Gerwig for Best Director, one of five women to ever be considered in this category. The overall lack of diversity in the media and in the workplace has been highlighted and discussed at length. But what about in education? What is the role of inclusion, specifically the inclusion of women in science and engineering at universities? And I think as two women who have pursued careers in the sciences, Sarah and I wanted to get some insight. While this episode's guest has an impressive background in research and a list of publications to match, her role as an educator goes far beyond that. I'm Margaret Ann Armour, and I'm Associate Dean of Science Diversity, which means that my mandate is to increase the percentage of women faculty in the Faculty of Science. Dr. Armour was born in Scotland and completed her studies at the University of Edinburgh. She joined the chemistry department at the U of A in 1979 and served as an assistant chair from 1989 to 2005. Dr. Armour has dedicated her career to advocate for the inclusion of women in science, engineering, and technology. Before we jump into her work as an advocate, we wanted to know what made her pursue a degree in chemistry at a time where it was unusual for a woman to do so. I think this is rationalization after the fact, but I love to tell the story that when I was about five, my mother, who was a very patient teacher, allowed me to bake on my own. Every Saturday morning in Scotland, we baked, because if you were having visitors, you didn't supply them with bought stuff. It was always home baking. And Mum let me do my own baking be a lot cleaner, quicker, easier if she'd done it herself. She let me do it, and I loved it. But I couldn't understand why I wasn't allowed to eat the dough before it went into the oven, but it tasted so good when it came out. And <clears throat> gradually discovered that there was a chemical reaction going on in the oven, and that chemistry could tell me what the molecules were doing, not just the, the more general ideas of what was happening in the oven. And that got me interested. And then I had a very good chemistry teacher in high school that probably finished the process. And uh, I've, I've been, it, it satisfied my curiosity about what molecules and atoms do. I think that's a really accessible way to think about chemistry. Now, in terms of the field of chemistry, we then asked if she had a specific area of interest that her research focused on. When I was in the chemistry department, I was actually trained as an organic chemist. That was my uh, main field. But then we got into the research area of looking at the management and disposal of small quantities of hazardous waste. I was on the safety committee in the chemistry department, and people would come and say to me, I've got a bit of lithium wire left over from my research. What do I do with it? And so we began to realize that there needed to be pulled together a set of instructions, practical instructions, of what to do with small amounts of waste. We, did, we thought, well... We could, from our knowledge of chemical reactions, we can begin to put together something that would be environmentally acceptable and practical. This mission that Dr. Armour's team set out to accomplish turned into 20 years of work. 
during which time she published the book Hazardous Laboratory Chemicals Disposal Guide, a bestseller that has shaped modern lab practices across Canada. I just checked on Amazon, and that book goes for about $300. And after all of this time, it's still listed as a bestseller. Amazing. When I go to conferences, people do tell me that it's very practical and it's just what they needed. And schools picked it up. And so most of the Albert, all of the Alberta schools have a copy of one of the early editions of the book. Dr. Armour had already become a trailblazer in the field of chemistry. But soon after meeting Dr. Gordon Kaplan, the former U of A vice president research, Dr. Armour's career began to focus on addressing the gender imbalance in STEM. When I went to the University of Edinburgh, there were 40 of us in the honors chemistry program and 10 were women, so it was 25%, which is probably better than it is in the chemistry department here now. So I didn't even think too much about the lack of women until, <clears throat> this, is, this is a funny place for it to start, for the work I did in industry, I uh, really wrote up the research and got an external master's degree from the University of Edinburgh but spent some time in the lab at the university talking with some of the other graduate students. And one who was a male from the United States doing a PhD at Edinburgh said to me, you, what a waste, you doing a master's degree and now you're talking about going into a PhD. You'll just get married and leave. Now, nobody had ever said anything like that to me before and it really shocked me. I couldn't believe that somebody would, would think that way. I mean, this is a long time ago, but it made me look around more and realize that the 25% that we had in undergraduate certainly didn't continue on into graduate work and then postdoc and then faculty. After PhD and going on to postdoc, now you're usually 27, 28, 29 by the time you finish your PhD. And young women are saying, do I want to go into a postdoc for two, three, four years? And then a 10-year track position for another five years, where my whole energy has to go towards publishing papers and making my career, getting a hang on my career. And many of them say, no, I would rather find something which will give me a little more time to, have, to look after my family and to get settled into, into family life. It's true. While more women are earning degrees in STEM, there is a decreasing percentage of women the higher up you move along an academic career path. In 2012, the Gender in Research and Innovation Committee of the European Union reported that 35% of PhD graduates are women. However, they make up 32% of entry-level positions, 23% of middle-rank positions, and only 11% of full professors. At the University of Alberta, that would be 18% of full professors. So how did Dr. Margaret begin getting involved in changing the plight of women in upper-level positions in academia? In 1979, Gordon Kaplan was appointed as our first vice president of research. And he was someone who was probably 20 years ahead of his time. Now, Kaplan was someone who took action. And, and so he phoned up about 20 people from the sciences, engineering, education, government, and brought us all together. And Wisest was born. And he, I can't remember whether we, where the 
the name actually first came from, but it was women in scholarship, and Kaplan was very determined that it would be all scholarship, scholarship science engineering task force. So that's where we started. He made it very clear that our mandate was to increase women in decision-making roles in scholarship science and engineering, and that whatever we did, we'd need to do some research, some, some digging, to see what the reasons why there were so few women. And uh, he was determined that once we had the results of that research, we would take action. And we'd look at some of the research that was done, and we could probably take action fairly quickly because there was a lot of stuff out there. We were not going to write papers on all the reasons and then put them on a shelf and let them get dusty. That was not what we were going to do. And he's instilled in me that if you want something to change, you don't just talk about it. You do something about it. You take action. So that was the start. Rather quickly, it became obvious that Wisest was something that could take action. And so it was not really a task force anymore. It was going to last for longer, perhaps, than we realized. And so I don't know where we decided, OK, let's make the T technology instead of task force. We're still wisest, but now we're not a task force. We're <laughs> ongoing. And my goodness, we've been ongoing for 35 years. WISEST stands for Women in Scholarship, Engineering, Science, and Technology. This is an organization that has spent the past 35 years empowering women. They offer summer research programs, opportunities to attend conferences, and to network with women who are in less than traditional areas of research. Dr. Armour shared many stories of how WISEST has impacted the lives of former participants. Yeah, she mentioned one woman in particular who took part as a summer research assistant and is now a professor in computer science at the U of A. So we wanted to know what makes this program so effective. To give us some perspective, Dr. Armour brought us right back to baking. Again, Kaplan was the visionary behind this one. But it's the opportunity to actually do science. And I liken it to if you have gorgeous cookery books with all sorts of wonderful pictures. Yeah, it's fun looking at them, but the best fun is actually doing the cooking. If you never get to do the baking or, or try the recipes, you get a bit bored with the cookery books. But that's how we expect people to learn science. Here's all these books with these wonderful illustrations, videos and all the rest of it. But it's when you actually get a chance to do something that you get excited about it. And I remember several times, particularly young women, have come up to me and said, this is science. I could do it. And I thought, yeah, that's the message we're trying to get over. So it seems that Wisest is um, a healthy balance between representation, mentorship, and opportunity in the intersection of those three things. So with that in mind, were you able to seek out meaningful mentorship um, during your career? Because it seems like mentorship does come in strange circumstances. Yeah, and it but I didn't know it was mentorship. The word <laughs> mentorship was not one that we used as I was growing up. Okay, we're laughing, sure, but this is an important point. More often than not, we hear about mentorship, and we think that we have to hourly seek a structured mentorship program. But any one of us can mentor or be mentored without really realizing it. And the benefits between the two are the same. A study from 1999 that was published in the Journal of Applied Psychology examined the effects of the type of mentoring relationship on career outcomes. 
although protégés with mentors received more career outcomes than non-mentored individuals, there was no significant difference on career outcomes between informal and formal mentoring structures. I think the fascinating part about that article is that gender plays a very big role in the outcome of mentoring. Tying into this, Dr. Armour mentioned an article she read about women learning math from other women. A lot of the time you can go through your undergraduate uh, degree without being taught by a woman. And again, there's a subtle message there which says, well, you don't belong here. However, this article said that engineering students, female engineering students, who were taught math by a female professor, were not as biased against it as those who were, who didn't have a woman instructor. I know, isn't that interesting? This mentorship again, mm-hmm. it's that, it's going back to that same thing. But it says that there are ways of having young women believe that they can do math. And we need women. We need women to teach math in high school because there's the first role model. And then we need women in math departments. We then asked Dr. Armour about some of her own mentors. She mentioned four who were influential in her career. The first was an analytic chemistry professor at the University of Edinburgh. She was profoundly deaf, which was rather interesting. So she wore a great big box. These were days before the tiny... Uh, helped to hearing. She had this great big box that hung round her neck. But interestingly, what what the influence she had on me, she expected an awful lot of us. She expected to do experiments well, to analyse them, to come up with the data, to um, then rationalise the data. And I remember as a group, we used to say, doesn't she recognise that we've got other classes? that this is not the only one, that she's expecting too much of us. But then we discovered that she was there to provide us with the tools that we needed to meet the expectations. And there's nothing more satisfying than being stretched and meeting the expectation. Stretching to meet deadlines was a regular occurrence during my undergrad. I guess some of my professors were mentors, unbeknownst to them. Uh, I think procrastination has something to do with that. <laughs> right. Anyways, Dr. Armour also shared her fond memories of the late Dr. Ursula Franklin, a professor of materials engineering at the University of Toronto. Dr. Franklin profoundly shaped Dr. Armour's philosophy on life. Kaplan had a very dear friend, a woman called Ursula Franklin, who was a professor of, mater- of materials engineering at the University of Toronto. And he brought her to give lectures here. And then she came as a visiting lecturer, spent a couple of weeks here. And then to my utter amazement, one time I got a phone call from her saying, I'm coming to the University of Lethbridge and I have the weekend after that free. Can I come and stay with you and we can talk? She, of all people, probably shaped my philosophy more than anybody else. She was originally from Germany her original degree, PhD, was in physics. And you can imagine, uh, this was back in the 1940s. Her mother was Jewish, and so they were in an internship camp and, and terrible conditions. Finally escaped to Austria and then to Canada. And just an amazing woman. I'm sure that those experiences shaped her. Quaker, 
very active in Voice of Women when it was at that time, uh, so a pacifist, but a philosophy that we should do science as if people matter. So always thinking of what's the outcome of our science? And she has wonderful stories, and I've picked up some more stories about what it really means doing science as if people matter. So she, as I say, tremendously shaped my philosophy. In fact, I find myself when I'm thinking about uh, decisions sometimes that I have to make, I wonder what Ursula would do in this circumstance. Uh, just a remarkable woman that I would sit at her feet any time and listen to her wisdom. And that time when she came and spoke and came and stayed with me, I called all my friends in Wisest and those I thought would be interested. And we got together on a Saturday night. And that's exactly what we did. We just sat at her feet. She loved to talk. But the wisdom that you learned from her was just incredible. And she died about a year and a half ago at 94, which is amazing again when you think of the hardships that she had in her early life. And she lived such a long life. And uh, I still miss being able to lift the phone and say, Ursula. What do I do? (laughs) It's remarkable to think that Dr. Armour was able to build this community of support around her, especially at a time where gender roles typically went unchallenged. It's no surprise that gender roles are first established at the home. In order to break societal stereotypes, encouragement and support from family is very important. So we were curious about Dr. Armour's mother and how she fit into this career path. The last one I can't miss out is my mother. Mm-hmm. who, as I say, was a teacher. She had a school for children with learning disabilities in Scotland. And here's a story I will never forget. I guess I was I was feeling very sorry for myself because I was facing, I think it was an organic chemistry exam, and uh, I didn't really feel that I was ready for it. But I, I, so that kind of colors, I think, what I did. I said to my mother, you spend more time with your children in school than you do with me. And she said, yes, they need me more. Now that wasn't really comforting for me at the time. (laughs) But then it made me realize, my mother is telling me, I can do this on my own. I don't need... And in fact, she said to me, you don't need me. You can do it. And so again, there's the same kind of thing as uh, Dr. Miller did, that I'm, I'll support you as much as you need, but you need to take the initiative and do it on your own. And I've always been grateful to my mother for doing that because it says she believed in me. Mm-hmm. And that's the most valuable thing anybody can do, uh, believe in you and let you know that they believe in you. Because it says, wow, I believe you can do it. And, you know, as women... I think we need to be told, you can do it. Mm-hmm. I know I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who often have said to me, well, there was this person who told me that they thought I was doing a great job and that I should go on and do it. And that was what made me continue in my academic career. Just like Dr. Armour and Dr. Kaplan, Dr. Armour's mother was light years ahead of her time. So now we wanted to know, has it happened? Have we experienced the shift? Are there more women in the faculty since Dr. Armour began her position as Dean of Science Diversity? Well, it's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Um, we know 
what initiatives to take. But there was an article in Science in 2012 which said it was going to take a hundred years to get equity in academic faculty positions. And you can imagine how I felt when I read that. I suppose in some ways I felt, oh, it's, it's not just me that's not being able to change this very fast. The reason for it is that when people get tenured positions, they don't tend to leave, they stay put. And so the changeover is quite slow. And we have not been hiring, for the first uh, seven or eight years when I was in this position, we were only hiring five or six people each year. Now, even if you hired half of the women, it's still only maybe two women that you're adding. And the numbers are so small that it was making very little difference. Well, things have begun to change. The last three years, we've hired 50% women into the positions that were available. And last year, we had 16 vacancies. That was far and away the highest number that we'd had since I started. But in areas like computing science, we've got um, DeepMind, which has come here, which is providing money to hire and through Google. And initiatives that, that uh, are encouraging computing science to hire more people. Now they've got more students than they've had in a long time. And so they need more people to teach. Students have finally realized that computing science is everywhere. <laughs> and the chair of computing science was quite excited because last year we doubled the number of women in computing science from four to eight. And so that's a fairly major difference. And once you begin to get more women, there's a kind of critical mass that we know it's about 30%. So we've a long way to go. So we now have a goal that by 2030, we will have 30% women in all the departments. It's a stretch goal and I won't be around to see it. So maybe that's just as well. I won't be disappointed if we don't make it. <laughs> but the, there's a there's the difference, the big difference that has happened that, that I'm just delighted about. The selection committees and the chairs of the departments are now being much more proactive in trying to diversify. And so we're beginning to look for women. And I've been saying this for a long time. I mean, I don't have the networks in all of the areas that I can approach women. But they're looking at the networks and they're looking to encourage women to apply because we need to be encouraged to apply. Women look at an ad and think, I'm not. I, I, yeah, I have a good research record, but it's not outstanding. And so they select themselves out from applying. Mm -hmm. And I keep saying, if you don't apply, you certainly won't get the job. <laughs> but yeah. we're changing ads a little bit. And that's why it's so important to invite people to apply. Then they're more likely to do it. Are you happy with the direction that the University of Alberta is taking and in general institutions uh, across Canada? It's getting an awful lot better. The university now, as part of the strategic plan, has a goal to increase diversity. And not just gender diversity, it's uh, indigenous peoples and people with disabilities, this kind of thing. This is one point that is extremely important to highlight. Yes, in this episode, we are focusing on the general role of women in STEM, but women are not the all-encompassing definition of diversity. Diversity needs to be intersectional. 
workplace diversity should tackle gender bias or racial bias, ableism, homophobia, etc., so on. Also, while diversity is something that we should continue to strive for, it does need to go beyond hiring members of marginalized groups. It's the act of inclusion. It's creating an environment where everyone has the same opportunities and the same level of comfort in their workplace. And so Canada Research Chairs, we have to come up with a, an EDI plan, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion plan, mm -hmm. that the university has now developed and that departments are also working at developing. And so this is a real push and uh, not always greatly appreciated, but I think it, it's almost like a catalyst to get us moving. That's great. Dr. Armour ended our segment by reiterating the benefits that come with striving for a diverse workplace and how it can be misinterpreted as simply replacing men with women. If any of those fields are something that you're really interested in and enjoy doing, then go for it. It's a very satisfying career and you've got a lot of options, a lot of opportunities, and you can do it. There's no question that young women can do it. Even math, everywhere, including the academy, needs diversity so that when we make decisions, we get a variety of opinions and that the final decision that's made is therefore a more robust decision, a better one. Industry is learning this fast, that if they have a diverse board, diverse um, executive, that their productivity goes up. Because now you've got people who look at things in a lot of different ways, ask a lot of different questions. And so you begin to get a stronger reaction than you would get from a group of people who are all the same. And one of the things I keep saying, I don't want to replace a group of men with a group of women, because that doesn't give us that strength that, we, that comes from these various ways of looking at things. So not only do I think it's important for women, I come back still to saying that my whole reason for working in this is that I want women to have the opportunity to reach their full potential. That's, that's my basic reason for being so involved for so long. However, I also know that the academy and industry benefit as well. Dr. Armour was a gem, and the University of Alberta is lucky to have her. She has received a number of teaching awards. She was named one of the top 100 most powerful women in Canada by the Women's Executive Network. Twice. And she is a member of the Order of Canada. In 2016, a public school in Edmonton was named after her. Her advocacy and outreach has helped shift the perception of women in STEM and will stand the test of time. Thank you, Dr. Armour, and thank you for listening.